Welcome to Grain Talk, a podcast by Grain Farmers of Ontario. I'm Megan Wright. The Grain Talk podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. In this episode of Grain Talk, we will speak with John Jameson, CEO and President of the Canadian Centre for Food Integrity. We will also get an update from Marcus Hurl, the Chair of Grain Farmers of Ontario. First, a Grain Talk news update. The Corn Hybrid Performance Trials ratings have been released by the Ontario Corn Committee. As you review the OCC tables, you will find that four locations were lost this year, Ottawa, Ilderton, Baynesville, and Woodstock, due to variability or unreliability of the data and will not be published. The remaining locations are being published and can be found on the website. Keep an eye on the planting date to help explain some of the high moisture levels in some of the trials. Visit gocorn.net for more information. Grain Farmers of Ontario's January district meetings have been called. These meetings provide an update on the activities of the organization and are when district voting delegates and alternates are elected. Directors will also be elected in even-numbered districts in 2020. Go to gfo.ca for details on when and where your meeting will be held. All current farmer members that attend their January district meeting will have a chance to win one of three getaways. The grand prize is a trip for two to the Commodity Classic in San Antonio, Texas. First runner-up will receive a weekend for two at Deerhurst in Huntsville. And the second runner-up prize is a weekend for two at Hockley Valley Resort near Orangeville. Three people at each January district meeting will be picked as finalists and will be entered into the draw for the getaways. All finalists will receive a Grain Farmers of Ontario prize pack. And now, here's my conversation with John Jameson. Joining me on the podcast today, I have John Jameson, the CEO and President of the Canadian Centre for Food Integrity. So thanks for joining me today, John. Thank you, Megan. All right, so you've had quite a career in agriculture, so we'll kind of backtrack a little bit. Uh, so to start off, can you tell me kind of where you grew up and how you got an interest in agriculture? Well, I uh, grew up in Prince Edward Island and was ra- born and raised there. I uh, spent a lot of time on my granddad's farm as a young man and a young guy and uh, had quite an interest in agriculture at the time. And, and it's interesting, today I have an article that was written about my grandfather in 1965. And in that article, it was a, it was a feature of, of him. And the article talks about his, uh, the genetics he was using on the farm and the, the fact that he soil sampled every field and the fact that he, uh, he tried to match the, the crop needs with the soil sampling. And a lot of the stuff was pretty, pretty uh, modern at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a certified uh, nutrient management planner now and I look at some of the stuff that my grandfather was doing in 1965, and it's very similar to what, you know, what we do now in terms of nutrient management. So, had uh, had a bit of an interest at the time, but didn't really grow up on a farm. But spent a lot of time around around my grandfather's farm. Wow, that's really interesting. That's interesting that he's using such modern techniques now that we're still using this many years later. So, uh, that's neat. Uh, so then from Prince Edward Island, did you stay in Prince Edward Island your whole life or where did you study or go to school? Yeah, I went to, went to university at uh, UPEI and I had uh, majored in political science with a minor in history. My plan at the time was to look at going to uh, law school and uh, I was lucky I started working 
essentially right at a university and, and always had pretty good jobs and, and just kind of continued my career from there. That's awesome. So where did that career path start? So uh, originally I worked in the fishing industry and uh, my first job at a university was the executive director of the PEI Fishermen's Association. And uh, when you're working with primary producers, whether it's in fishing or aquaculture, agriculture, it's all very similar. In the mid-1990s, I went to work in the hog industry, and I worked with the Hog Marketing Board on Prince Edward Island for a number of years, up until 2004. And the next 11 years, I spent with the Federation of Agriculture and was their executive director. So you said you minored in political science, so I guess working in government or in politics was always of interest to you? Is that kind of where you wanted your career to go? Well, no, it actually came out of the blue, but my approach when I was um, executive director of the Federation of Agriculture as a lobbyist, and I was a registered lobbyist, both federally and provincially, um, my approach was I would go to government and say, okay, here's an issue that we have. What can we both do to get it to a better point? And I think government liked that approach. And and, uh, when Wade McLaughlin uh, was working to to become premier, he came to see me one morning. And he said, "Um, I'm going to be doing some restructuring. And he said, I'd like you to put your name forward for a deputy minister position. And I thought about it and uh, talked it over with some, some people who had been deputies and decided that I'd let my name stand and then went through the process and was named uh, Deputy of Agriculture and Fisheries. Uh, so I actually replaced two deputies because uh, Wade McLaughlin, at the premier at the time, uh, put the two departments together. Me having experience in both sectors mm-hmm. uh, ended up uh, working in, in, uh, in that field and I really enjoyed it. And, and I really enjoyed working with him. Um, he was uh, had, had been uh, Dean of Law at uh, Dalhousie, had taught at Yale, had uh, uh, was Order of Canada, and, and just, I just, he was a wonderful person to work with. Going from working in government uh, and then now being the CEO and president of CCFI, what was that transition like, or how do you think those roles prepared you for this new role? Well, when when you're deputy minister, uh, you get a letter from the premier, your minister, and you do. And in our case, because we represented the biggest parts of the Prince Edward Island economy, agriculture and fisheries and and aquaculture. That mandate letter that was presented to the minister and and deputy talked about growing the economy. And when we were challenged with growing the economy, we didn't find that access to capital or innovation or access to land was the challenge. What we found was public trust and having people um, kind of allow farmers and fishermen and, and people in the aquaculture industry to, to do their job. So I had, I had an interest in the file. I had previously sat on the board of Farm and Food Care Canada, which is a precursor to the Canadian Centre for Food Integrity. It was a file I've always had an interest in. And when the opportunity came forward, I said, you know what, this is something I'd like to try. I... Um, I was prepared to go back to working in industry because uh, I had had a lot of years experience in that and it was a file I was interested in and I always kind of wanted to work on the national scale and, and, and the opportunity presented itself and I was quite happy to, to, uh, to be accepted. 
So when you say you noticed um, some of the challenges were to do with public trust, when you worked in government, did you notice a challenge in terms of just the government understanding some of the challenges that face agriculture and why they're important? Yes, less so on Prince Edward Island because in, in, in PEI, agriculture is the number one industry. Um, so, you know, where Alberta has its oil, uh, Prince Edward Island has agriculture. And so we did find that uh, politicians, for the most part, had a pretty good handle on why it was important to continue to grow the sector. There, there is in Prince Edward Island, though, a very active activist community. So while the politicians, I think, understood the need to grow the industry, there was also a lot of pressure uh, from people who are concerned about pesticide use or, or manure spreading or, uh, you know, w- we went to a community one time uh, called Rustico. And this is a community that its entire history is built around the fishery. And people for generations have made their living from the fishery. And there was an oyster farmer who wanted to uh, grow an oyster operation in the area, and he met considerable resistance, even though the area had a history of working in the fishery, even though oysters have a, a benefit benefit to the environment because they're filter feeders. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of the challenges that we were running into. And it's the same with someone who wanted to set up, uh, we, had a, we had to work with a farmer who wanted to set up a high bush blueberry farm. You know, perennial crop, a new market, new opportunities, and, and still uh, we had to work pretty hard to get that past the finish line. So it gave you an example of, of the struggle that people had to, to grow the sectors, not necessarily from the political side, but from the public side. And the public and the politicians have to respond to the concerns of their electorate. So then, so that is kind of a clear segue into uh, your current position and why you're interested in it. Uh, so for those who don't know, can you tell me a bit more about the Canadian Centre for Food Integrity and what, you, what the organization does? So the Canadian Centre for Food Integrity was established in 2016. It was formed from uh, the original organization, Farm and Food Care Canada, and actually uh, Barry, your CEO of uh, Ontario Grain Growers and myself sat on the board of, of Farm and Food Care Canada at the same time and got to know each other quite well there. Uh, it turned into the Canadian Centre for Food Integrity and it has an affiliation with the Centre for Food Integrity in the U.S. and the mandate and mission goal of the organization is to help the industry do a better job of, of essentially connecting with, with the general public and consumers. So. Over the past number of years, what we've been doing is uh, research and tools to help the industry do better. Now, we have developed a new strategic plan, and that plan will broaden the activities of the organization. So back in September, we were endorsed by the Public Trust Steering Committee, and this was an organization that was designed to um, build a strategic plan for public trust in agriculture in Canada. We were endorsed by them as a coordinator of public trust among organizations in Canada. So um, that will uh, provide us with an opportunity to to work with what we call the amplifier organizations or organizations like uh, Ontario Grain Growers to provide them with some resources to help them do a better better job. Uh, You know, some policy analysis, uh, communication tools and research. And we've been doing a lot of research and we'll talk about that in, in a few moments. The other piece of our work that we'll be doing as a, 
as a result of our strategic plan is developing a proactive communications uh, plan that uh, will be led by the CCFI. And we see ourselves as having some credibility as a, as a third party uh, trusted voice uh, because we don't represent the industry. We are science based and, and, and based in that way. Um, so what we have done was we've struck a communications committee that uh, is made up of, of a variety of communications experts from across the food system and outside of the food system. Um, so we have a young guy on there who has a background in social media. We have a dietitian who at one time uh, really questioned the food system, but through her uh, involvement in, in uh, attending Farm and Food Care Ontario uh, tours, certainly has a different idea of the food system now that she had in the past. And then we also have people in, in, in uh, for example, folks from CropLife Canada um, and a number of other organizations that will provide us with, with support on how to move forward on this proactive communications plan. So really, the new, the new organization or the, the new CF, CFI will be more collaborative than it has been in the past. We also want to build on our research and do more research and provide resources to the sector, but we also want to be more active in, in communicating to the general public. That's awesome. I think that that's one big thing agriculture needs to work on is being more proactive than reactive. I feel like everyone in the industry is trying to work on that. So that sounds really good. Great. And also having people that don't have that agricultural background. That's really great. So you mentioned some of the research that you do. So the 2019 Public Trust Summit was recently held in Saskatchewan. Um, So at that event, you guys presented results from the 2019 Public Trust Research. Uh, so how's that research conducted and uh, why do you do it? So right from the start, uh, we've, we've always done research and we created a research plan in 2016 and it, and it led for each year. And, this, and the 2019 research was a follow-up to that research plan that we had. We have a, uh, a very strong research committee that uh, has a number of researchers from across Canada that participate in developing the research plan for the organization and also help design the work. So the 2019 work, there was really three pieces of work that was done. One of them is around the interviews with the consumers to get their uh, their opinion on, on the food system. And Ipsos does that for us and they interview online roughly about 2,200 Canadians okay. to do that. Uh, the ethnographic research is is done by another company and they look at the online conversations of about 9,200 Canadians. What, what types of things are they engaging in? And then the other one that we did was, was on uh, messaging. What messages resonate with the general public and the consumer? And we had a company that used artificial intelligence to look at 250,000 conversations across Canada. And that's where, that's where that piece was, was done. So there's online uh, surveys. There's some looking at uh, conversations that are happening and then, and then uh, postings of, of Canadians on, on agriculture and food. Um, so what topics were the focus of the 2019 research? And can you explain why each one was chosen or how you guys do that process? So again, the, the 2019 research often is a, or was a continuation of the work that we had done in 2017, 2018, especially with the consumer tracking. So the, the online uh, surveys that we do, that is really to follow up on 
do Canadians think the food system is heading in the right direction? Uh, what are their what do they know about food production? Uh, what are their concerns? What are the top concerns they have in terms of, of uh, things in their in their life? That's that's a continuation that we do every year. The other piece we did was we looked at ethnographic research where we looked at different cohorts within the general public. And we started that work in 2018. And then in 2019, we did a deeper dive into the investigator and the competitor to try to give our um, partners a bit more information on how to connect with those folks. And then the, the uh, piece on the online car conversations, that was part of the public trust uh, steering committee's uh, development of a strategic plan into um, public trust and what conversations and what things resonate with the general public and what necessarily doesn't. So that was that was uh, part of a project. The other two were continuations of, of previous research. And it's it's important to have that that data that you track over years because you can see if you're you know if you're doing if you're doing a little better job or if the needle is moving. Um, for example, you know we we know that we're people are typically a bit more accepting of GMOs now than they have been in the past. We also know they're they're getting a little bit more comfortable with the conversations around antibiotics than they haven't been in the past. So we are making headway, and it's important for us to track you know, how we're doing. It's not to say that our, that our work is ever going to end, but at least we know if we're, if we're hitting, the, hitting the right uh, target audience and if we're making an impact. Just a high-level level overview before we get more into it, but what were kind of some of the main trends that you saw? You kind of just mentioned a few. But... Well, one of them that I think is interesting um, is we asked Canadians, what do you know about food production? And... 91% of Canadians said, you know, we know little or nothing about how our food is produced. And when we released that in Saskatchewan, I think a lot of people were surprised. I wasn't. I thought that that, you know, that kind of made sense because, for example, I drive a truck. And if someone asked me, how is your truck produced? Well, I'd say, well, it's made in a factory. And I wouldn't know a whole lot beyond that. Right. And I spoke a little while ago at uh, a veterinarian's conference, and I talked about uh, some of our numbers and I talked about the 91% not having a lot of information about the about the agricultural production and I said you know there's 150 people in the room if I asked you how mussels are grown or how oysters are grown or how the fishing industry operates or how oil and gas I think the numbers would be very similar mm -hmm. but what I see different in agriculture and food production is that 60% of those same people said, you know, I'm interested in learning more. And so there's where the opportunity is. And I think that's the biggest takeaway from, from our, our research is that, yeah, we don't know a lot about uh, food production, but we are interested in learning more. And that's an opportunity. It's a challenge, but it's a real opportunity for the food system. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, and it makes sense since so many people are moving away from farms. It used to be everyone had you know, family or whoever that farmed, and it's just getting further and further away from that. Exactly. So one of the other questions I was asked or brought up in that research was if consumers believe Canada's food system is headed in the right direction, um, and the highest percentage of the population was in the unsure category. So I guess this probably goes along with them not knowing as much about it. Um, but why do you think this is, and what do you think needs to be done to push them into that right direction category? Again, I think they're unsure because they don't know a lot about 
how their food is produced. And I, I, I'll go back, I'll tell a little story. And uh, in my office, when I was deputy minister, I had a photo on the wall. And it was a young guy standing in a dairy barn. And almost everyone that came into that office said, I love that photo. And it was a, it was a big picture. And I said, well, let's chat about that photo. Because a lot of people that came into my office didn't have a background in, in agriculture. And I said, the cows are tied up. And I said, actually, their tails are tied up too. I said, there's a small fan in the back that you can see. I said, the farmer, you know, he's maybe six feet tall, but the ceiling is not much above his head. And I said, and there's fluorescent lights. So I said, there's no natural light. There's very little ventilation. I said, there's a lot of dust around and some feet on the floor. So I said, there's probably a fairly healthy population of rodents there. And I said, if you were driving down the road and you looked at that farm and you'd say, you know, I like that because it reminded you of what your grandfather or what you may have seen in the past. I said, since that photo's been taken, that barn, that barn has been bulldozed. Mm-hmm. And I said, they built a new barn and now the cows walk around and they have robot milkers so they could get, the cows can go get milked when they want. They can get scratched when they feel like it. They have natural ventilation. They have curtains that go up and down when, when uh, based on temperature. I said, they have all kinds of natural light. And I said, so it's a lot better for the farmer and for the animals. But I said, if you were going down the road, you'd have a great sense of uh, nostalgia around that old barn. And you'd look at the new one and say, ooh, factory farm. That resonated with a lot of people that came into my office and I went through that with. So I think Canadians are unsure about the food system because they don't know a lot about it. And also because they're not quite sure who is providing credible information and and where that credible information can be can be found so and I think that's it it does create an opportunity for sure because we know people want to know more and we also know that the number of people who feel that the food system is going in the wrong direction hasn't changed so those people that are unsure are really who we need to, t- to target and uh, actively um, tell our story mm-hmm. It's a really good story that makes a lot of sense. I actually just saw a commercial on TV the other day. Um, it was it was for dairy, but it was an organic dairy line. And they said, you know, most dairy products show cows out in a field, like grazing in a pasture, but really they're locked up in these factory farms. And it showed like those longer barns with the curtains, like, um, and they said, you know, but ours are organic, they're outside. And so I feel like there's also some of that, there's always a bit of a disconnect between the organic and conventional and you know we represent organic farmers and conventional farmers and so it's just trying to show people like they're both good they're both okay that that was one of the things that i really struggled with when i worked in both with the federation of agriculture and as a deputy minister Uh, the organic association was part of the federation they were part of the 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 mix Mm -hmm. and a lot of times their messaging was well we're better because we're not such and such and when you look at the production practices of conventional versus organic, about 90, 95% of what they do is very similar. Mm-hmm. It's, it's typically what's involved in, in uh, you know, the pesticide use or, or some of the animal care pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember we did a tour one time with a number of reporters and we toured a, a modern dairy operation. And again, it was one of these barns where the animals are, you know, f- walking around and and one of the reporters asked the farmer they said how come they're not outside and he said well actually if you look in the end of the barn he said it, it 
we can open that up. And he said, there's a big area that they can go out. Mm-hmm. But he said, when we open it up, the cows refuse to go out. He said, because they they like it in here because it's very comfortable for them. And he said, you know what? My feelings would be hurt if they went out because I spent a lot of money on cow comfort yeah. to have them in this barn. And he said, you know, and then we went to a beef farm then and they had let the, they were black Angus and it was a hot day and they, they had let the animals out and the animals were all standing at the barn door wanting back in. And again, the reporter said, okay, now we get it. We understand that the, you know, one of the reasons the animals are undercover is because it's just more comfortable for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. That's like on our dairy farm on a hot summer day, the coolest place to be is in that freestall barn. So. Exactly. And in the middle of winter, no one wants to be outside in Canada. So. But you, you touched on an important point, and, and I think one of the things we need to do is speak as an industry and speak with one voice on a number of topics and that's what we hope to do with our communications plan and what we need is what i think what we call food system harmony is that you don't build yourself up by by tearing and you know the organic industry has a great story to tell they don't need to challenge other types of production all they need to do is tell their own story and i think we need a bit more food system harmony than we've had in the past. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, all right, so back to the some of the other topics of the research. Uh, so the top three issues that were listed in the research from consumers were mostly about rising costs. So there was rising cost of food, affordable healthy food, and the rising healthcare costs. So how do you think that we as an industry can address any of those issues? I'm not sure we can address the issues. Um, as an industry, but I think what we can do is help Canadians understand the food system and these, and that may alleviate some of these concerns. Uh, we know in Canada that we have the second lowest uh, per capita food costs in the world. Uh, the U.S. is the lowest at about 6% of their income being spent on food. Canadians are second, 9%. Europeans tend to typically are in the teens, uh, along with some Asian comp- uh, countries. But a lot of the world, they just get up in the morning and, and you know, anywhere from 30 to 50% of their income is spent on food. The challenge for us is when the Western world has food costs in the, in the single digits and teens, then people can make decisions about what they want to eat and what attributes those, those foods want to have. Mm-hmm. I think the best way for us to address those issues, though, is to, is to help the consumer connect with food production and they understand that the Canadian food system is very safe that it actually is for most people affordable there are people out there that have that have challenges and we need to work work on that as well but um, that the Canadian food system is healthy that it's affordable and also we've gotten away from a lot of young Canadians and and people even my age um, don't necessarily make the best choice is when we go to a grocery store and we may because of time we may select things that are ready to eat or are packaged or or and you know and we've moved away from cooking that traditional meal where in a lot of cases you know potatoes carrots turnips piece of meat in is a pretty economical economical meal but we make choices as consumers and sometimes we make choices that that aren't always the most affordable. Mm-hmm. But I think if we can connect, do a better job of connecting the general public 
with how, how food is produced and why it's, why it's produced. Like, there's, there's good reasons why food is processed, mm-hmm. for example. And uh, we need to help people understand why our Canadian food system is so safe, healthy, and robust. Mm-hmm. So the research identified five different consumer archetypes. Uh, so the challenger, investigator, institutionalist, follower, and competitor. I think you mentioned this is a continuation from the 2018 research. Um, so which of these consumer types, as we were talking about the consumers that are in that unsure category, um, which ones do you think fall into that category and the wanting to learn more category? Actually, I think they all fall into the unsure category. Uh, what those, uh, archetypes show is the different places that people like to seek information or what, what resonates with them. Uh, we know that, for example, the uh, the challenger will, if something on the label says this is the best, then the challenger will buy that. I think where we need to spend some time is with the investigator. The investigator will not necessarily take things at face value, but will look to a credible source of information mm-hmm. on a particular topic. So an investigator might look for an academic study or something around that 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 answers our question. So I think if we can target, and the investigator also has a fair bit of influence on the other parts of the of the general public. So if we can spend a bit of time targeting toward the investigator and providing them with credible information that connects to their values, then we have an opportunity to move the bar. So then the research did a deeper dive into those investigator and competitor uh, profiles. So what percentage of Canadians, roughly, do you think fall into those two categories? Actually, our research showed that uh, investigators represent almost 20% of the general public, and the competitor is about 18%. And each of them have um, a stronger voice than actually they represent. So they have an influence on the other pieces uh, that is even greater than the percentage of their population. So the third uh, section of the research that it focused on was online conversations and what messages resonate with consumers. So one of those conversations was around GMOs, which I found interesting because that's something that we as an organization get asked about a lot at consumer-facing events. So what did your research show in terms of what messaging wasn't resonating and what messaging was? So with GMOs in particular, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like you strong advocate for GMOs and and one of the one of the neat things that I worked on in my career at government was uh, supporting uh, Aqua Bounty which has the GMO salmon and a lot of that that was developed in Prince Edward Island and uh, and came to market and approval while we were there and actually had sent staff uh, who who provided expert uh, advice to Health Canada and others but what we found in our, and again, we looked at 250,000 conversations on, and a lot of them involve uh, GMOs. If we use the terms that, well, GMOs help with uh, global food insecurity, or help us, feed, help us feed the world, or they help reduce pesticide use, we found that those messages were less impactful than, than others. But if you can frame it that, especially now with all the conversations around climate change, that GMO use can help uh, have a positive impact on climate change or has a positive uh, impact on soil health, 
those messages tend to resonate a little better than saying, oh, we need GMOs to feed the world. Mm -hmm. And typically, the message that we have to feed you know, 11 billion people by 2050 doesn't, just doesn't cut it. And I think those numbers are just too big yeah. for people to understand. So then with GMOs, how do you think the non-GMO label on food products uh, contributes to consumer understanding around GMOs? I have a lot of problems with that. It's, I think it's confusing. Mm-hmm. And it, it also is, we talked about food harmony a while ago, and it's basically saying, well, we're good because we're not GMO. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's only, what, 10, 10 actual GMO uh, products out there and the challenge I or the problem I have is when they label something that you couldn't get a GMO even if you tried so I think that the consumer is confused by those labels mm-hmm. um, the, the message they're getting is well GMOs are bad because you know they we're, we don't have them so we're good but we do know from our research that consumers are starting to question labels mm-hmm. and I think that's a good thing and if you're questioning something, chances are you will actually do a little bit of research to find out what the reality is. So I think uh, I think going forward, we're going to see that uh, those labels aren't going to be as effective as they have been in the past. And I think over the years, what we haven't done well in the food system, or you know, in particular, is when technologies are developed, we don't spend a lot, we spend a lot of time and money on developing the technology, mm-hmm. but not necessarily a lot of time on, on figuring out how that technology can, connects with the general public's values mm-hmm. and the benefits of the general public. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know, and I know my, I have a lot of background involvement with the GMO salmon. They spent millions of dollars developing the GMO salmon. They spent almost nothing in telling their story. And the fact that you grow them on land, that you use 99% recirculated water, mm-hmm. that they grow faster because they use less feed, like all kinds of benefits to that, and I know that one very well because of, to that particular animal, mm-hmm. but they spent almost nothing over the years in trying to make that connection to the public. So all of a sudden, you know, it comes up that these are frankenfish, and that's a messaging that gets out because they haven't spent the time as they were developing the technology to figure out how to connect with people's values and to provide what benefits they provide to society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I feel like it's it kind of goes along with what you're saying about proactive communications because I feel like in the past we just produ- produced food and people bought it. But now, especially with social media and everything, like everyone just wants to know everything and they have so much choice. They, they want to know what the best one is and yeah I think it's really important like you said if they had just kind of advertised the benefits before putting the word GMO out there because I think people just hear genetically modified organism and it just kind of freaks people out yeah scares them mm-hmm. yeah so another part of the research said that three in five Canadians show interest in knowing more about modern agriculture and modern farming practices as you mentioned uh, so what do you think are the best ways to reach those Canadians or kind of the messages that we should be telling them? Well, I, th- I think the first thing we need to do is think about what people's values are. And we know there was an interesting study out of the University of Waterloo that looked at uh, what Canadians' values are and what the values of millennials are, and they're the biggest uh, cohort right now. And we know that they value 
sustainability. Mm -hmm. We know they value diversity. Um, so those are the messages that we have to, to, to wrap ourselves around. I also think that we need to start, rather than starting at the farm gate and moving forward, we start at the food and work backwards. Because when you go in to buy something or you're, you're preparing a meal, you're preparing food. Mm -hmm. And if we can say, okay, well, this food is produced this way, rather than saying, you know, starting at the farm gate and moving forward, I think we have a better opportunity to connect with consumers. We also, you know, we told that story a little while ago about the farmer standing in the barn and, and the photo. Storytelling is very effective. Mm -hmm. And I was at a conference in, in Newfoundland in the aquaculture industry here a little while ago, and I was on a panel to talk about public trust. And they showed a video, and the video was produced for the Newfoundland Aquaculture Industry Association, and it was about muscle production. The, the video was a minute 48, and I would have even shortened it up a little bit more, but it was a minute 48, so it was nice, and it, it didn't take a long time investment for people to look at it. In the first 30 seconds of that video, this lady did an extremely good job of telling how muscles are grown and how they end up in the plate. And the, the language she used was very colorful and easily understood. So she said, you know, the muscles, they spawn in the wild, they have a little jacuzzi time, which means they, you know, they get together, they decide they need to stick on something to grow. So she said, what we do is, we provide them with clean, clean collectors. They attach themselves to the collectors. Once they get to a certain size, we take them off there. Then we hang them in lines that are like garland on a Christmas tree. So it was a language that every consumer can understand. And in the first 30 seconds of that video, mm -hmm. you knew that when they got to two inches, then they went to the market. Mm -hmm. The remaining minute or so of the video talked about their sustainability practices and and how the mussels were filter feed here and had a positive environmental impact and how people were able to work in rural communities. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a nice example of using storytelling to tell a story, but in a language that connected with the consumer. And I, th I thought they'd done a very good job of that. And I think we need to do more of that in ag. I think sometimes we, we make videos, but we make them too long. Mm -hmm. Or we speak in, uh, you know, we may talk about no-till or this or that or the other thing in a language that, you know, or sow crates or something that people can't understand. Mm -hmm. But when you when you describe something in a language people can understand, then it it makes it more palatable. So when, when she talked about hanging the lines at Garland on the Christmas tree, yeah. every single person understood what she meant. And I think it, it also kind of connects with how you're saying you're working with people on that communications committee that aren't from agriculture. I think that also really helps because they're like, well, I don't know what that means. So the general public probably doesn't either. The other thing, I think uh, one of the things that we're recommending for our communications committee is that we actually establish our general public panel, that we bounce all our messaging off a group of, you know, just people from Toronto, for example, mm -hmm. and to see what resonates. And I don't know if we do that quite enough. Mm -hmm. um, as we were preparing for our summit in Saskatoon, uh, we sent a film crew to Toronto and uh, we interviewed, I think it was, I don't know, 30 or 40 Canadians or consumers on the street and asked them a bunch of questions about food production. Most of them didn't have a clue what we were talking about. And uh, so it tells you that we have a challenge, but again, there's an opportunity there. And I think we have to understand 
how to speak in a language that's interesting because food production is interesting. Mm-hmm. I sat with a bunch of farmers the other night over dinner and somebody said, uh, you know, we had oysters at a restaurant last night. How do they grow them? So I told them, you know, how they grow oysters and they, you know, they, again, they collect them, collect the seed from the wild, mm-hmm. you know, as they, they put them in a bag and as they get bigger, there's fewer in the bag. They put them in a tumbler and they tumble them so that gives them some shape. Mm-hmm. And these farmers found that extremely interesting and food production is interesting when you don't know about it and we have to do a good job of making it interesting so often the the aggie at a dinner party Mm -hmm. is the person that has people all around them because people are asking about how their food is produced what we do and it's often very interesting to people Mm -hmm. and we just need to scale that up Well, yeah, and really it's it should be a very common topic to talk about because everyone eats, so it's just taking that one step further of where did that food come from. Yeah. All right, starting to wrap up the interview, what do you think are the biggest challenges currently facing the agriculture and agri-food industry? Well, I do think, as I mentioned earlier, public trust, I think, is a barrier to growth. And uh, we know a couple of years ago when, uh, when Dominic Barton did the report on economic growth in Canada. He recognized agri-food as a big opportunity, but he also recognized that uh, public trust is a challenge. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think overall, I think labor is, is going to be a challenge for, and it is now, for the, the food system. Mm-hmm. And I also think that uh, we're going into a period of uh, trade restrictions. And I think uh, overall, uh, even though we've we've had uh, some new tra- trade agreements signed recently, I still think we're going into a period of protectionism and trade is going to be a, a challenge uh, now and going forward. So I think in this past decade, now that we're moving into 2020, a whole new decade, I feel like the past 10 years was a lot of that consumer public trust because consumers were starting to wonder how their food was produced and wanting more of that information. So do you see that just continuing in the next decade or what do you think maybe would be the newest challenges in the next 10 years? I I think that'll continue to be a challenge. I think though the sector, I think we had to convince ourselves that public trust is an issue. Mm -hmm. So I think we've spent the last 10 years understanding that we have a challenge here because as you mentioned earlier, for, for decades, we just produce food and people bought it. Mm-hmm. And people are still buying our food, but they are questioning how it's produced. Mm-hmm. So I think that will continue, but I think the next decade we'll see the industry get on with it. So, you know, I've talked to your your boss here, Barry, different times, and he said, you know, we're done having consultant reports on that we need to do something, now we just have to get on with it. And I think mm-hmm. that will be the next decade, I think you're going to see the food system work more cooperatively and cohesively to tell a story. And I really think that that's that's where we're heading. So with that, the agriculture industry is now taking action on that. What do you see or what are some of the common tactics being used now to communicate to consumers that you maybe think aren't working or what would be kind of your few tips of how better to communicate with consumers? I think we're doing, I don't I think we're doing a pretty good job for the most part. Um, I think we need to understand that uh, there's a lot of diversity in Canada. So we need to promote maybe some of the diversity that's in agriculture, focus on some women farmers or some immigrant farmers, and they don't necessarily have to be the owner of the farm. They, I think we need to show that diversity, you know, the, it's great to show, farm families and in a rural setting but that isn't the reality for a lot of Canadians 
So we need to think about how do we connect with Canadians. I think we need to do more storytelling. Mm-hmm. I think we need to also understand just how interesting it is what we do. And also the other thing is we also have to feel good about what we do. Mm-hmm. And I remember being at a meeting one time and, and, and there was someone was was talking about pesticide use in the in the uh, in the potato industry and I could see the farmers almost slinking down in their chairs and we chatted about it after and I said you know we have to feel good about what we do in order to be able to promote what we do mm-hmm. so I said you know you use pesticides for very good reasons and sound scientific reasons and they are tested I said don't feel bad about what you do just because someone says you shouldn't be doing it because someone has an unrealistic idea that you can produce food without you know with you know farmers use pesticides because they have to not because they want to so I think we need to do storytelling understand that it's interesting but also we need to make sure that we feel good about what we do because then you can promote it better so what do you hope for the future as an organization? Where do you hope your plans will take you? You talked a bit about your strategic plan, kind of looking ahead in the next decade. What's kind of your hopes for the Consumer Trust? Uh, I don't know if I'll be here for a decade, but <laughs> I, I hope to look back at my time here and say that we've made a difference mm-hmm. and that we've had an impact on uh, consumers' attitudes but more so in that the industry has decided to work together to achieve that public trust. And I think that's where the success will lie, mm-hmm. in that we have a common messaging. And I, I had a, a really nice glimpse of that a little while ago. And uh, about a month or so into the job, I got a call from, because I only started back in July, um, I had a call from the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, and they were talking about a protest that was going to happen at five or six CFIA offices across Canada. Mm-hmm. And they said, if we're called for the media on this, we don't really want to speak to it because it was, it was actually a protest against animal agriculture. Would you do that? And I said, well, we could, but I said, I think it's a better idea for us to arrange a call with the different sectors mm-hmm. and see how they want to approach it. So at 1130 on a Tuesday, I sent an email out to the Canadian Meat Council and all the different animal commodity organizations and said, we're going to have a call at 1.30 because the protest was starting right away. At 1.30, pretty well everyone came on the line. And they didn't decide that the CCFI would speak on their behalf, but what they did decide was that the CCFI would come up with five or six key messages that regardless of who got a call, those are the key messages that we would all speak from. So from, for me, the success was that the industry had decided it was going to work together and that they decided on five or six things that, you know, regardless of who gets a call, this is their common messaging. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we're going to have success. And if I can look back and, in five or six years' time and, and say, you know, that's where we move the bar in the organization, then I'll be happy. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's so important because agriculture is such it's a big industry but at the same time it's kind of small and it's one that so many people don't understand whether it's dairy or chickens or grains whatever it is so i think it is really important that we kind of band together in that public trust so that's awesome all right well thank you so much for taking the time to join me today on the podcast thank you megan (laughs) 
And joining me on the podcast today, I have our chair, Marcus Hurl. Thanks for joining me today, Marcus. Yeah, good afternoon, Megan. So how's harvest going? We're into December, almost at Christmas time. How are you doing with that? Well, so for myself, we wrapped up harvest, uh, but it's been a real struggle to get everything done. As uh, as we know, uh, the weather has been playing a big part of delaying harvest. And uh, just to keep in mind here, uh, there are still a lot of acres of corn and even soybeans that have to be taken off by by the farmers out in the countryside. And that's from uh, east to southwest, the same story. Uh, looking at some of the figures that came through just this week, uh, there's roughly about 15% of soybeans still out in the field, 25% of corn, um, but those acres are going to be very difficult to get from here on in because uh, there's not many days that can call perfect harvest days. And uh, we know that more snow is on the forecast, colder weather is going to be a struggle to finish off, and uh, quality is one of the issues of the of the year because some of the corn doesn't have the bushel weight. Uh, it's going to be a difficult marketing year on top of it uh, because uh, processors are always looking at specific grades to uh, pass through their process. So we're hoping that they're adjusting some of the discount levels and let's hope that farmers can find a home for all that, that crop. I know a lot of farmers are hoping to beat the snow. I know I'm from just north of Barrie, and we got quite a bit of snow on the weekend. So I think guys in our area won't be able to get out into the fields for a while, at least. So let's hope it's going to turn to a better time period, at least for one or two weeks more. And wish everybody the best to wrap this this nasty 2019 harvest off and it's been a struggle from beginning to the end and uh, let's hope 2020 can only come bring a lot of better cropping and uh, in in all aspects so let's hope for that. Yep we can only hope. (laughs) Today there's the federal provincial territorial ministers meeting in Ottawa and they'll be discussing some things around the business risk management programs um, so I know we sent out a press release for minister, to Minister Hartman about the importance of those BRM programs. So did you want to touch on that? Yeah. So uh, as we've been engaged in heavily in the whole BRM review process uh, from provincially and nationally, uh, we're looking at this day uh, of 2019 basically finishing off in a good manner that government addresses the BRM programming that's going to address the shortfalls that we all have on our business risk management portfolios. So what we're looking for here, uh, first of all, timeliness in a program or program review structure that's going to be coming out. Second of all, uh, leaving it open, not tying it to a dollar amount, because as our conversation around business risk management becomes broader, uh, because we're looking into different aspects of uh, trade, market volatility, weather, uh, there needs to be a bit more flexibility under those programs. And we're hoping that uh, all ministers are acknowledging this being significant facts because 
farmers are struggling from one end of the country to the other. So it's not just an eastern or western issue, it is a national issue. So one good thing that I kind of see here is that uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau just came out with the mandate letter to uh, Minister Bebo to make sure that the uh, businesses management file is being looked at in proper, timely manner. And uh, I think there's a goodwill part in this, but what I need to see here is action. Mm -hmm. And the action needs to be happening now. It's not next year. The farmers need that shortfall dollars covered by government as soon as possible to make sure that they're going to be viable and sustainable for next uh, coming year. Because we're let's face the fact, we're only five months away from, from next planting season. Mm -hmm. And uh, farmers are going to be cash strong this year. Like, like uh, There is no ifs and buts. And the, uh, the challenge that we're having, we're now into the second year of depressed soybean prices. We're still asking also through GFO as a compensation package for soybean trade impact, which has been left aside with this whole VRM review. Like we're still looking for a trade war fund around that side also. So um, it is many different moving parts within that conversation of uh, compensation. And uh, we're hoping that something positive is going to come out today. Please note, this session was recorded prior to hearing the results of the FPT ministers meeting on December 17th. Grain Farmers of Ontario has put out a release addressing the results of the meeting. You can find it on our website at gfo.ca. Now back to our conversation with Marcus Hurl. Coming up in January, we have our district meetings. Um, so that's when directors in even number districts will be elected and alternates and delegates will be elected in all districts. Uh, so do you want to talk a bit about the importance of those meetings? Yeah, so I urge all farmer members uh, that pay checkoff dollars to Grain Farmers Ontario to attend the district meetings because it is one of our main avenues of, first of all, briefing our members on what GFO is doing on their behalf and how we invest their checkoff dollars. And uh, also it gives a bigger overview on where we are in specific files. So um, just looking at uh, research, market development, communication like those are all moving parts that are important for our farmer members because often enough we're now being looked at by society needing to prove what we do and uh, I think we can showcase that within our district presentation somewhat what we're doing on your behalf and also take in consideration it is also one of those meetings that you do elect your district delegates for the 2020 year which you uh, can basically step up and we encourage new members stepping up to uh, becoming a delegate because it is a very important that uh, Grain Farmers Ontario remains a strong grassroots organization and it is built through the uh, delegate base that we have. It, it is uh, very important that every member takes time for a few hours to go to their district meetings 
And the, uh, the dates and times are, uh, first of all, in the uh, magazine, GFO magazine. And you will also receive a postcard that uh, will indicate where your uh, district meeting will be uh, taking place. Again, uh, please take time to come out and we encourage everybody to be there. And on top of it, if you're one of the lucky three people that gets to win a prize or from across the, uh, the province, we're, uh, we're gonna choose three winners out of, uh, out of the pool of attendees. And let's hope that uh, you're one of the lucky, lucky candidates that are gonna be going uh, and get a, l- a little gift as our token of appreciation. All right. Well, that's awesome. We hope to see lots of our members out at these meetings. And thank you, Marcus, for taking the time to chat with me today. And I hope the rest of Harvest uh, goes well and goes quickly. So um, we'll probably see you out in January at some of those meetings. Yes. Well, thank you very much and uh, have a nice afternoon. Thank you for listening to our Grain Talk podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more ways to connect with us, including the latest webinar, market report, and our e-newsletter, go to gfo.ca slash grain talk. A special thank you to our guests this week, John Jameson and Marcus Hurl. If you like what you've heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And remember, five-star reviews help us grow our audience.